good morning, everybody. Welcome to Human Touch from Interact Studio. I'm Lou Solomon. This is a free bi-monthly series now as we move into the fall devoted on authentic communication. My friend, Dr. Mark Kelso is our guest this morning. I'm so excited about this. He is an award-winning professor at Queens U University of Charlotte, my beloved alma mater. He is the right fellow to talk with us this morning because gosh, he, he teaches a variety of courses. Listen to this. He uh, teaches campaigns and elections. I'd like to audit that one. Uh, environmental politics plus Congress and the presidency. Oh my goodness. Uh, Mark is currently working on a series of articles exploring how partisanship affects presidential elections on environmental policy. Wow. So he is published many times over. Mark is a global traveler. He's won lots of awards. And before we, ever, we even get started, Mark, I, I would like to ask just how you're doing. I mean, this year is so hard on universities and certainly folks have gotten the brush with COVID here and there. I hope your family's safe. How, how are you doing? Uh, we're doing all right. Uh, uh, last spring, Queens ended, I think it was sometime in March. Uh, we had hoped to come back for the fall, but that just didn't work out. So we're online teaching. Uh, my wife is an administrator for Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools. Oh. So she's mostly home as well. Uh, but fortunately, we have not had any immediate health problems. Uh, certainly, we we, we know people and some people in the extended family are, have uh, contra contracted the COVID uh, virus, but uh, so far so good as far as we're going. Yes, well, we had a scare too. My husband was exposed to a buddy of his who uh, was in the same room with him. So just out of precaution, he got tested and he's negative, but you know, that, that uh, gives you pause, no doubt. So, okay, well, Mark 2020 is that year that we just could never have imagined. And certainly the election that looms is, is no exception to that year that we couldn't have imagined. So I would like just to begin with generally what you believe to be the issues that matter most in this election. So if we had uh, had this conversation a week ago, I would have said, <laughs> I would have said COVID and health related issues, the economy and, you know, social racial justice, something like that. Of course, in the past week, a fourth issue has, you know, you know, vaulted to the top, perhaps uh, the Supreme Court nomination. Uh, and that touches on so many other things, not only the social issues, but also uh, healthcare, um, the fate of Obamacare, uh, you know, may be decided based on this uh, Supreme Court nomination. So I, I think those are the biggest ones. I think in terms of how each of the candidates um, fares on each issue, I think that the, the COVID and the healthcare issue is one that very strongly favors Biden. Um, poll after poll shows that Americans seem to be very dissatisfied with the Trump administration's response to COVID. Um, and that, that's not true of all elected officials. Some governors, for example, are, are getting very high marks. Um, 
some other leaders around the world are giving very high marks. But in particular case of the US, the Trump administration has not gotten um, a positive feedback. So I think that issue favors Biden. The economy is a very strange one. Um, ordinarily, uh, as we are in the midst of a recession, and in some cases, a very severe recession, we would say that's almost game over. Uh, in fact, I cannot think of a case, uh, his, historical case or recent case, where a president has been reelected in the midst of the recession. However, because that is so tied up with COVID, it's unclear about how much the voters are going to blame the Trump administration for the economy. On the racial or social justice issue, I, I think it's kind of split, uh, depending on how you, whether it's people protesters with a legitimate grievance or violent protesters rioting. And I think the Supreme Court issue is, is, is very interesting. Um, we don't know exactly how it's going to play out, but, um, you know, it could, it could really be a, a, a great thing for, for either side, or it could be a total wash. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you with the uh, debate coming up on Tuesday. Uh, just historically, how much impact do those debates have? Ha has it over time increased since we're in such an emotional year? Or what do you, you said it could be a total wash? Well, <laughs> the, the debates since 1960 have been, um, except for the couple years they didn't have them, they have been probably the most hyped things in the presidential election. Um, the irony is, that very rarely have they really made a huge difference in the outcome. Now, there was one prominent case that uh, some of you may be old enough to remember. Uh, in 1980, Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan debated. And because of some controversies over the format and thing, it didn't happen. There was only one debate between those two, and it happened a week before the election. And in um, the minds of most people, most commentators, voters, et cetera, Ronald Reagan won a decisive victory and it basically kind of turned a, a sem somewhat close election into a complete landslide for Reagan. So in 1980, it made a huge difference. However, um, most of the rest of the time, uh, you don't see, uh, debates aren't the game changers. You know, in fact, you know, you have some instances where uh, someone can do very, very poorly in the first debate and still go on to win the election. In fact, there are last two incumbent presidents in 2004, John Kerry uh, and uh, George W. Bush debated. And again, in the minds of everyone, John Kerry won a decisive victory in that first debate. In the end, George W. Bush ended up getting reelected. You saw the same thing in 2012. In the first debate, Mitt Romney won a very decisive victory over Barack Obama. Uh, but in the end, it didn't make that much difference. I, uh, the one caveat I might say, say with that, though, is a, you know, a, one, one debate you can recover from if you do poorly in all the debates, I think it might have an effect. But for example, in 2012, uh, Barack Obama recovered fairly quickly in the last two, two debates, and I think that made a big difference. But, you know, one, one debate's not necessarily a killer unless it's the only debate. Yeah. You know, as students of communication, me and my teammates are always curious about the conversation that they after a debate, because what people talk about is the body language, the uh, 
the size, the rolling of the eyes, the it's, it's not the issues as much, nearly as much as it is how someone's presence uh, is interpreted as defensive or encroaching on somebody's space. That's what we talk about. You have the famous uh, historical example of 1960 and the first debate where um, uh, John Kennedy and Richard Nixon debated. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is that uh, Richard Nixon was actually recovering from very serious illness right before that debate. So one of the reasons he didn't look that great, um, but it's so interesting because you know, you've know you probably heard the story that uh, the people who listened on radio thought Nixon won, but to your point, Lou, the people watched on television just because Kennedy came off as more charming and everything else and Nixon was ill and he looked, didn't look great. Um, you know, the people watched on television gave it to Kennedy. Um, one thing I want to um, uh, point out here, uh, what makes this kind of a, a different situation than some, some other years, and we can kind of come back to this, perhaps 2% of people in North Carolina have already voted, uh, according to the State Board of Election. And by um, next Tuesday, it might be even higher. So in this particular election, probably by the debate's end, you know, when they end sometime in October, you might have a third, a quarter, you know, some significant percentage of people who have already gone to the polls. And that, that's going to probably limit the impact of the later debates as well. Wow, that's so interesting. Well, with the, the big swirl around the Supreme Court nominee, what role will women play in this election? <laughs> Huge role. <laughs> <laughs> Well, beginning in 1980, we started to see something called a gender gap in American presidential elections. Uh, and the gender gap is simply the tendency for women and men to diverge in their, in their presidential choices. So the women uh, since 1980 fairly consistently have preferred the Democratic candidates. In fact, I think in every election except one, uh, one or two, uh, if w only women had voted, Democrats would have won. Whereas Republicans have done, uh, gotten the, uh, have dominated them among male voters. In 2016, the gender gap was 24 points. In other words, I think it was something like women went for Hillary Clinton by 13 points and men went for uh, Donald Trump by 11. That's the largest in history. Wow. And most uh, people expect that to be similar today. I was actually just looking this morning some polling data from the New York Times, and I think it was Iowa, Georgia, and Texas. And, you know, you, you saw the same phenomenon. I mean, women are going for Biden by 13, 14 points. Um, men back Trump by, you know, a similar margin. Um, and it's important to keep in mind because of two things. Um, one, women live a little longer than men do, and thus there are more women in American society of voting age and two, because women vote at a slightly higher rate than men do, in most states, and I think this is definitely true nationally, women are the majority of voters. Um, so they're going to have a huge role uh, in this uh, in this election. And I, and I would focus on two important groups: college-educated white women and suburban women, because those are two groups that. Um, 
Trump didn't do that badly with in 2016, but in the 2018 midterm elections, the Republicans did horrible with those two groups of women. And if, if the polls can be believed, uh, they continue to do horrible with those two groups of women. And that could really be a decisive factor in this election. Wow. Well, and I know that we could spend a lot more time on just setting aside the racial unrest and, and the heartbreak that's happening there, but talk to us about what role people of color will play in this election. Yes, um, it's very interesting. So first of, first of all, we have to kind of separate um, kind of different groups of voters. So let's take the African-American vote first. African-American vote since 1964 or so has been strongly Democratic. Uh, basically, the Republican Party got on the wrong side of the civil rights movement, and African-Americans have been fairly loyal since then to the Democrats. The big issue in 2016, though, was that African-American turnout dropped, I think, by about five to six points nationally, and in three of the key states, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, it dropped significantly there. And of course, those states ended up giving the election to uh, Donald Trump. So for the African-American vote, I think especially um, if you're looking from the Democratic side is, you know, you want to get that turnout back up. Okay? Uh, and African-Americans actually voted at a higher rate than whites in 2012. And perhaps that was because we had an African-American candidate. But um, two other groups are very important, though. One is the Hispanic or Latino vote. And one of the reasons this is complicated is because they're not a cohesive group. We kind of, the political pundits and, and demographers and people kind of put them all together, but they're very different. I mean, Puerto Ricans uh, are very different than Cubans, from Mexicans, from other people, uh, when it comes to voting, uh, when it comes to political things. For example, Puerto Ricans are strongly democratic as are Mexican Americans. Uh, Cubans tend to be more Republican. So, especially in certain states, that can be a crucial vote. Florida for one, Arizona for another, even, even North Carolina, uh, not as large a, a population of Latinos as in other states, but certainly could be crucial. And then one, one last group I want to mention, uh, because they're often forgotten about, but Asian Americans. Uh, first of all, they're a growing group in the, in the, in the population. Second of all, most Asian American uh, groups um, vote at a fairly high level. Like Latinos, they are a disparate group. You know, you have everything from, you know, Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, Vietnamese Americans, etc. But the one thing I find interesting as political scientist is this is one group that has changed dramatically in recent years. If you go back to um, the elections in the 90s, Asian Americans as a block tended to support Republicans very strongly. Uh, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but I, I'm thinking, I think it was the first George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush got something like 60 some percent of the Asian vote. You flip that around to 2016 and the Democratic Party, Democratic candidate is getting 60 some percent of the Asian vote. So that's a group that has really changed. And again, it's, it is, it's crucial in, in some states, uh, some states that have larger Asian populations, uh, but it's often a group that gets kind of ignored by the media. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, you know, there is so much uh, being said about the mail and uh, it, that is just one of what has been called barriers to the ballot box. Should we be worried about a catastrophe in November? <laughs> wow, that's a great question. I'm, I'm not sure I have the answer. What, why don't I start off by talking about North Carolina? Um, because, uh, you know, if you've read the paper or looked at the news this morning, we have a, a you know, we're in the national news because I think it was yesterday, two members, two Republican members of the Board of Elections resigned, claiming that a settlement that was reached, I think, a, a day or two ago, um, that made some slight alterations in voting rules for North Carolina was, was unlawful or whatever. And basically what happened was there's numerous pending lawsuits and the Board of Elections trying to kind of put everything to the side, tried to reach an agreement on some of these basic things. For example, if a uh, ballot is received by election day, you know, or, or it's postmarked by election day, how long you give it to be received by the Board of Elections. Um, another big issue was, uh, had to do with witnesses. In North Carolina, if you do an absentee ballot or a mail-in ballot, you have to have a witness sign. Now, if you did not do that, because a lot of people are totally new to this process, um, you know, it becomes a problem because if everything was right, except for you getting the witness signature, it, it seems unfair to throw out the ballot. So another uh, compromise they made was that um, if you didn't have the witness signature, they would recontact you and say, hey, you need to get, you need to get this. And then the third thing had to do with uh, dropping off ballots. Um, there used to be a requirement that you have to actually write down in a log, you know, who you were turning it in. And I guess one of the things they agreed to that's because of the flood um, of ballots they're expecting is that you could do this orally. So the state board of elections and supposedly a bipartisan manner had agreed to all these things. But for whatever reason, um, I guess the, the two Republican uh, members uh, uh, decided differently and had a change of heart and have now resigned and, you know, throwing everything into um, disarray, I guess. Um, in terms of North Carolina, though, in general, we don't have, I think, many of the, the problems that other states do. I mean, of course, we can't control the mail, but in terms of getting out the ballots, in terms of having um, ways to get them back in, in a timely manner, in terms of processing the ballots, um, you know, we, we our laws tend to be a little bit uh, clearer on that than some other states. You know, New York had in one of its primaries early in the summer just a craziness because um, it took them forever to count the ballots. But it's important to note in New York, they don't even start counting absentee ballots until. Uh, after the polls close on election day. In North Carolina, we can start up to two weeks before election day and counting those ballots. All the law says is you can't release those numbers in any way before the polls close. So we actually start counting the ballots earlier than most states. Yeah, yeah. Well, what to you, Mark, is the most fundamental concern about the way this election will be handled? I mean, there's a lot there that you've covered, but if you had to talk about the differentiator 
in past elections versus this one. What, what is your main concern? What are you watching? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, what is going to be, uh, I think, very important is how quickly states are able to process some of these mail-in ballots. Uh, and I, the reason I say that is you're seeing a partisan distinction in how people are going to vote. Baltimore, with any state, um, most of the Democrats are going to be either mailing in or, uh, or doing early voting. And that, that's actually not the, it's always been a big Democratic uh, uh, thing. Whereas many Republicans are going to vote on election day. So if the Republicans vote on election day, those votes are immediately tabulated. If you have a state that's going very slow in, well, the early votes will be tab tabulated too. But if you have a state that's going very slow with the mail-in, you might have on election night a very different uh, situation than the actual count. You know, we even saw this in 2018 on election night because California uses a lot of mail-in ballots uh, on election night in several congressional races that seemed like the Republicans were winning. But as the mail-in ballots were counted, um, several Democrats ended up winning. I, I just have concerns about the confusion that would make if you have some states where it seems like say a Republican candidate is out to a big lead, but the reality is that there are all these Democratic votes that um, have not been counted and it might show a lot of confusion into there. Um, I think on election night, probably the, uh, the three states that I would watch would be um, Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina. And the reason for that is if, pretty much if um, Biden wins Florida and or North Carolina, it's very unlikely that he would lose some of those Midwestern states just because of the partisan lean of the state. And thus, if he wins Florida and or North Carolina, it would, you know, it, it would lessen some of the confusion. Georgia, uh, I don't know they have to win Georgia, but if Biden is even coming close in Georgia, because, you know, it has traditionally been a Republican state, that would give you some, some signs as well. But I, I guess the short answer is worried about confusion on election night and people trying to use that confusion to create some kind of chaos. Mark, our friend Claire has a question about why Democrats tend to pre-vote through mail-in and Republicans go on site? Great question. So traditionally, when states um, kind of created early voting, um, some of the Democratic political strategists said, this is great. We can bank votes early and we won't have to worry about doing all this stuff on election day. For example, if you go back to the African-American uh, demographic, a lot of African-American groups, especially in, in uh, Charlotte and North Carolina, like to get in, uh, you know, get in a van after church, go down and vote. So you bank those votes early. For whatever reason, um, the Republicans have never been as strong with that. I guess they maybe they feel that election day was, was sufficient for them. Um, usually higher turnout favors the Democrats. So maybe that's part of it too. So Democrats have always been, at least in 
however many years we've had early voting, have been more excited about the early voting. I think what's happening this year, though, is that I think there's a partisan distinction in how they they see the coronavirus. I certainly, Democrats in general, uh, Democratic voters tend to see this more seriously or taking it more seriously. Republican voters are not. So um, I think Democrats are, you know, changing their behavior a little bit uh, based on the virus as well. Got it. Got it. Well, gosh, Mark, thank you so much. I mean, this has just been fascinating and taking time to be with us is, um, I'm grateful to you. Uh, it's been, it's been wonderful and insightful. Oh, you're welcome. It was fun. Yeah. Well, please plan to- well, Thank uh, you for having us. me. Oh, listen, anytime. We'll have you back. Let's have you come back after the old okay. thing run out. <laughs>